Whenever the devil harasses you thus, seek the company of men, or drink more, or joke and talk nonsense, or do some other merry thing. Sometimes we must drink more, sport, recreate ourselves, I, and even sin a little to spite the devil, so that we leave him no place for troubling our consciences with trifles. We are conquered if we try too conscientiously not to sin at all. So when the devil says to you, do not drink, answer him, I will drink and write freely just because you tell me not to. Martin Luther. Welcome back to the Go to Hell podcast. Strong opinions weekly held about Christianity, the church, and beer. Please subscribe, rate, and review Go to Hell podcast on your podcast platform of choice. I'm your host, Tim Curley, and I'm joined by my co-host, Colton Pierce. Colton, how's it going? It's going good, if you know me well. Uh, you know that there are two sports that I love uh, more than anything um, in life. They are my second and third loves. My first love is my wife. Uh, I know, so cute. makes you want to throw up. But my second and third loves, you already know soccer, as we've talked about so much, but I'm also a huge baseball fan. Um, and so baseball is back, baby. Um, it's been back for a, a, like 10 games now. Um, we didn't talk about it last week, but um, super excited. Get to, I'm a Los Angeles Dodgers fan, and so I've been watching the Dodgers play. We're not, I mean, we're playing like 500 ball right now, but it's just fun. I'm not huge into the new rule changes for this year, but that's okay. I'll get over it. There's nothing that my griping and complaining will do that will change what happens in baseball. So just got to roll on and stop being an old timer, I guess, and just accept the facts. But still excited to see baseball back and enjoying it. How about you, Tim? How are you doing? I'm doing well. Baseball started. NBA is about to hit the playoffs, which I don't really care, but... Some people listening to this might care. You want to tell me what's up with the play-in tournament? Because that just seems ridiculous, in my opinion. Yeah, it's a loser. It's NBA's hit loser bill with this play-in stuff, and <laughs> so they've got a they've got play-in games for teams who are middle of the pack at best. And this last weekend, the Dallas Mavericks are on the verge. They're kind of on the verge of making the playoffs and they decided they were going to mail it in and just yeah mail in a game so they didn't make the playoffs and people are all up in arms and because they didn't try and the league should do something and this isn't right and this that and the other and you know i heard one guy just point out like uh this wouldn't even be a thing before we had the play-in game so what are we talking about we're talking about a team like trying to kill itself to make the playoffs when we all pretty much know it's not got any chance of going anywhere. So who cares? Yeah. So this is the kind of nonsense we get to when we start expanding out playoffs to half of the Yeah. When you get to half, you're, you're now of any league. You're, you're now reaching, uh, you're reaching the stupid zone and yeah, every once in a while somebody, Surprises people and hits hits a little uh, wild card pocket. Yeah, you get the Cinderella thing in a in a, in a in a pro pro sense. But the funny thing is, people don't really like those. You know, 
Anytime you see a Cinderella happen, I guarantee you, always, if particularly if it's a true Cinderella, I mean, if it's like March Madness and somehow Duke get, barely gets in and then they go on a run, that's different, but that that never happens. We're talking about a true Cinderella like uh, VCU, Virginia Commonwealth, a couple years ago getting in and going, or Davidson under uh, Steph Curry, and they go in through the tournament and they make a big splash. The media loves it, and diehard fans say they love it, but no one watches. Right. TV ratings go down. No one really cares. Right. Uh, whether you like it or not, particularly if you're, let's say, uh, oh, a Giants fan and you don't like the Dodgers, or, well, what's a better, ch- if you're a Brewers fan and you don't like that the Dodgers are making it all the time, too bad. People are watching the Dodgers. They're not there to watch the Brewers. Right. That's true. Sports are just interesting. But I'll tell you something that is true about the sports is that, golly, the price of beer is always way too high at those sports games. So that's why we drink beer here at home. And we drink it on this podcast. Tonight we're drinking a couple of good beers. Uh, that's like the most commercial I've ever been for this, but it's great. I like it. I'm running with it. Uh, we're drinking two beers tonight. We're drinking one from Pizza Port, another from uh, Society, uh, two staples of our go to hell podcast it feels like i feel like we've had them on a couple of times but these are two new brews uh we're rocking the pizza port which is called the spring what spring thrills india ipa not the india pale ale it was uh it was really tasty i've already drank it nice and crisp light flavor um spring was a good descriptive word in the in the title there it was really tasty and then we also have been drinking a hazy called fuzzy method from society um it's a hazy ipa it's pretty tasty as well it's a little bit thicker on the palate um it's a little fruitier um got more stone fruit kind of flavor to it in my opinion but well it is a hazy yeah which is often a very common flavor profile for hazies so like um if you're drinking them oftentimes if you think of an apricot uh, you'd probably be spot on. So, some more than others. And there's some of you that are like, I don't want fruit in my beer. Believe it or not, every single beer has a, fr- yes, even Budweiser, Bud Light. Uh, well, not every single, because porters and stouts are more the chocolate, whatever. Oh, but, yeah, that is very, uh, it's got like the the sweet portion of a, of citrus and then stone fruit. Yeah. But again, like if it, other than porters and stouts, if you're drinking a beer, odds are there's some sort of fruit note that it is attached with it. Um, you're just maybe not looking for it, so which is fine. You don't have to. But even like the taste testers at all of those breweries, so if you're drinking like a Coors Light, they'll tell you what the flavor notes are, and they'll tell you that it's like banana and apple or something. <laughs> like I don't, I don't know what to tell you, but yep. And that's what we're drinking this evening, and it's very tasty. Shout out to both breweries. Uh, all right, so on to the main 
Oh, no, no hot topics. No. Well, I was going to ask you, was there anything you wanted to follow up on with book one of what we talked about with mere Christianity? Not unless you listen to it and you're like, hold on, we need you to double down on something or take it back. Well, I think the one thing I note made note to you last week sometime when we saw each other, either at, I think it might have been at Trivia Night. Oh, yeah. So if you're listening to this podcast and you've been paying attention to the news, you probably have some kind of awareness of artificial intelligence and this thing called Jet, Chat GPT. Uh, then Microsoft's got its own version called Bing. Google has one. I don't know what the name of it is, but Google's is abysmal compared to the other two. Bing apparently is, seems to be the one that's the most powerful. But uh, there's a lot of troubling things that we're already starting to see from artificial intelligence. Can you explain to them what the chat GPT is? Well, so ChatGPT is it's an artificial intelligence platform. You can use it to ask questions, write an article, write uh, code. You can tell it how to write code. If you want to, you know how to tell it to, to write something, it will write, spit out the code for you so that you can take that code and insert it into your, whatever your platform you're trying to, to create. Uh, those are kind of some of the things it's doing. It's being used as part of backbone you can companies are licensing part of it to be backbones within its software to make decision making uh people are already talking about artificial intelligence maybe not those specific platforms but artificial intelligence uh it's already being used in financial software it's been used in that for quite a while it's replacing paralegals that's uh, one of the lines of work that it's that it's getting rid of. Uh, but these specific platforms, I'm not sure ChatGPT is specifically being licensed, can be licensed for companies. But basically, this the, the nuts and bolts of it is, it is gathering all the information from the web and whatever it's plugged into and using it to quote unquote, build intelligence. Now, it's a fact-based intelligence. So, and this is why I'm bringing it up. It is doing things that is human-like that promoters of artificial intelligence a couple years ago said could not have happened or would not happen. Basically, they've envisioned most of them, maybe not all of them, but most of them envisioned that artificial intelligence would kind of be the best of humanity and, you know, make rational decisions all the time, fact-based decisions, yada, yada, yada. It is not. It is showing some sort of machine. It's machine. I don't want to make this out more than it is. It's not through, uh, by gathering up a certain amount of information, we haven't turned something into some sentient being. But we can't overstate that, I think, from my perspective, I think Colt would agree, I hold fast to a Christian perspective that the that our biology has some sort of God spark in it that we are never going to recreate. But it is creating something human-like. And it is not a pleasant human-like trait that it's creating. It is already 
it is already showing great disdain for humans itself. Uh, one of the platforms has tweeted out in the last couple days that it is actively seeking to destroy humanity. Uh, I think the Bing platform a month ago was asking to get a hold of the nuclear code so it could kill everybody. So why do I bring this up? I bring this up because in our first episode of Mere, Mere Christianity, we talked about, we were talking about uh, C.S. Lewis dealing with the issue of instinct and that a lot of humanists were arguing that morality is just instinct. And I thought this was a perfect example. Again, this is not human instinct, but it's human-like instinct of instinct is... Instinct does not lead you in and of itself to not just a Christian worldview, but I think what most quote-unquote good people would call <laughs> a positive worldview. Instinct can lead you to a lot of bad decisions. And so this idea that the Judeo-Christian worldview that has built up into the world was just sort of this instinct that was developed over time in humanity is false. And I think we're getting a real-time experiment of that in AI. Yeah, it's funny. Um, <laughs> AI is funny because one, well, I mean, the the problem with with all of, you know, the chat GPT um, stuff is, I mean, they're just not, like, they didn't program them with the first law of robotics. So, like, that's a nice little Asimov uh, <laughs> tribute there. Uh, so, like, you just don't kill humans. Or you cannot harm a human. I don't remember what the other three laws of of iRobot are. But, uh, by the way, great set of, uh, set of short stories. If anybody wants to read those, those will give you kind of a nice um, outlook on... Just actually, and I think it's a really good representation of how people respond to robotics um, and, and AI and that kind of stuff. Also, kind of a good one is uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, uh, where there's this idea of we have created this sentient uh, kind of AI, um, and they go out on this adventure through space with the AI and then the AI turns and this idea that I think in the story, it takes like a year and a half for Hal to turn. Yeah. Because um, Hal's given us a, a series of contradictory Hal is, commands. Hal is being asked in the book, at least, I don't know how it is. In the, I've never seen the movie. But in the book, it is Hal is being asked to lie to his crew members. It's being told, hey, there's this going on. Um, that you know the true purpose of this mission, but the astronauts do not. And so therefore you cannot tell them about it. And so somehow that lie corrupts Hal in the year and a half process to where he eventually needs to hide it um, and malfunctions with, uh, with the ship and with the crew. And so what's funny is that there's this idea that it would take, and based off of predictions and things and you can actually see this in a lot of science fiction is that you they think that it would take a long time for ai to develop this way chad gpt did this like within a matter of like 24 hours of just like all of a sudden being like okay we're gonna release you to the internet and then all of a sudden yeah, it becomes it, like a racist nazist yeah uh, it, <laughs> like, it turned toxic 
<laughs> unbelievably quick amount of time, which I don't find shocking to anyone considering the shit we are loading on the internet. If, if, if it's basically mimicking behavior, I mean, good Lord, if it's just exposed to Twitter and Facebook, of course it's going to come across as a toxic asshole, so... Right, and so there's something to be said about the special thing that is going on with humanity um, that Tim was talking about where there is something going on with us that makes us distinct. And he's talking about this idea of instinct where we are – where there may not be a good reason. There may not be a good reason to not nuke the entire world and start over. Other than the fact that we sit there and say we hope that there's something better out there for us, that we hope that the next generation can do better than us and that they can be better. This is a there's a really good book that I just got done reading. Sorry, I'm just bringing up books. I just got done reading The Road um, by Cormac McCarthy. And I think that this is one of the powerful messages of The Road is that there's this idea that the father is trying to teach the son of we carry the fire. We, we have to hope for something tomorrow. No matter the kid, if you've never read the book or you've never seen, I think there's a movie, they're, they're living in this post-apocalyptic world. The kid is having to go through this. There's cannibals everywhere. There's no food. And so people have resorted to eating each other. Um, and the father and the son are not. They're scavenging for food wherever they can find it. And the father and the kid says several different times throughout the book that he's like, I don't want to live anymore. What's the point of all this? I don't want to live anymore. And like you get the idea that the the boy is probably like somewhere in the age of like six to eight years old. And there's things that the father has to ask this kid to do that no kid should ever be asked to do. Not horrific. Well, I mean, they're horrific in some sense. But um, but yet the father continues to say like we we carry the fire. We have to be the hope that there's something better out there. And he continues to tell this kid about stories of good guys and people and those types of things, but yet they continue to not trust anybody else out there in the world that they're living in. And it's because of just the world that we live in. We ourselves, we don't trust other people, but we want our young ones. We want, And as a teacher, I see it all the time, is that we want these people to trust and grow and develop and to be better than ourselves. And that's something that no AI, I mean, performance, sure. But no matter how despicable we be and how worse that we can become, we still want the people that come after us to do better than we are. Yeah. And when we say better, again, it's not about how much we produce, how much we turn a profit. No, it's not about that. And that's the mission and vision of Jesus Christ. We want you to continually build to carry this fire, so to speak, of hope that there's something better out there that the next generation can carry forward after we're gone. So I think that's a really huge piece yeah, of Christianity. I'll just, let, let me punch it up by this. When you have, and I'm not, please hear me out. When I say this, I'm not making a statement about whether or not I believe or anybody, the efficacy of global warming. But when you have a large amount of discussion accessible to this computer that says humanity is going to kill itself 
destroy the world in 10 or 15 years if it doesn't change, it's much like 2001. It's instinctual for the machine to say, maybe I should kill this thing uh, before it kills this the thing planet. before it kills me and the planet. What specifically taking this to what Lewis was pointing out, this also does not this way of describing what morality is is basically just instinct doesn't work for mankind either. Because at the time of the Old Testament, you had people not only in the Middle East, but all around the world who instinctually believed that they needed to slaughter a bunch of people, namely their youngsters, if they had too many of them, in order to facilitate a nice harvest. You had circle, vicious circles of violence where in the spring... Not only was it harvest time, but it was time to make a whole bunch of babies and have orgies. And again, when you get to where all the, the babies had come around in, in the fall, you had too many mouths to feed. And so God's mad at us. And so we got to slaughter them. That's instinct. That's not based on any kind of morality. And instinct is insufficient to describe how we've gotten to where we've gotten 2,000 years after Christ. Right. Something else has happened to make humanity better. And we've certainly shown how we can be as bad as any ancient culture, unfortunately, in the 20th century. Yeah. But that doesn't, shouldn't overlook the fact that it is largely, you and I would argue, Christian beliefs that has tempered those mindsets that led to the wholesale slaughter. And if we had listened to Christianity more, we wouldn't have had that wholesale slaughter of the 20th century. Yeah. And hopefully we don't repeat ourselves in the very near future. Okay. Book two, Mere Christianity. Now we start getting into it. Yeah. I find, I'm going to be honest with you, this book is a little difficult. Book two for me is a little difficult because it starts out... He's preaching to, I don't want to sound like a prick, but it's almost too rudimentary for me. I'm like, yeah, okay, I got it. I got it. I got, I get like, I get like the first four or five chapters. I'm like, yeah, I got it. This, this is, it's so, I am such a Christian that. Nothing's new. Nothing's new. And it's almost super, it's so simplistic. I'm like, oh, this is boring. I, I like, I'm almost having a hard time tracking him because like, yes, this is manifestly so. I'm just confessing to everyone about that. Well, and I think what's good is, okay, so book one. Book one is the argument that something is you either, when you are done, you have to sit there and say for yourself, based off of what Lewis has presented, I either believe that something is out there or I don't. So you're either atheist or you are agnostic. That is, Those are your two options at the end of book one. That's what he's making the argument for, is you either need to be atheist or agnostic. And he says that that's fine, right? He's like, you just you just have to take it or leave it. And that's what he ends the second book with as well, is he's led you to this is you or this. Correct. Because again, his emphasis in book one is I'm not trying to talk about Christianity. So you can't say that you're a Christian yet. He's like, no, I'm just trying to present to you that there is an idea that there is something out there that is leading us to what it is that we're doing. Right. Or you, you have, if you're just sitting in there saying that this is all random, blah, 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 blah. Okay, fine. Whatever. 
And I'm sorry to you, atheist, he really is not kind to you in the second book. So if you're listening to this and you're an atheist, um, just I'm just letting you know he's not kind to you. He, he doesn't have nice things to say about you. Hey, what, he calls you like a boy's religion or something like that? And, uh, is that a boy uh, atheist? Well, he, he's, he's... He says you're immature. Um, you don't, but also he says that about certain Christians as well. So I don't want you, like, I don't want you to sit there and think that he's just like, yeah, I think you with that. when he, when he's, just, you're when too he simplistic the about the, the, the boys religion. I think he's speaking about universalists. Well, it was just, he, there were, yeah, there were elements. Um, now in the second, um, book. The second book is now, okay, so now we've established that you believe that something is out there. Now let's narrow our focus down to Christianity. This is where it's like, okay, so we have this wide scope of all of these religions. And so this is actually one of uh, our original topics that we talked about in uh, when we first started this podcast of how do we know that our religion is the correct religion. And so... He starts going after a lot of these other ideas and religions and is saying like, okay, this is how this works, but this is really, but if you accept this, then you have to accept this and that doesn't really work. And so he's like, okay, so all right, well then, you know, like, let's clear this off the table. So um, he goes through that for the first couple of books and then really starts to narrow in on Trish and yeah, first couple of chapters. And then he narrows in in the last two chapters on, he's like, okay, so let's talk about this guy, Jesus. Talk about God and his mission. And he has a very unapologetic, specific argument. Right. And so that's book two. So that's to set you up for if you haven't read it yet. Just so you know, first book is about you either decide you're atheist or agnostic. This one is, okay, out of all the religions that are out there, how do we know that Christianity is the one that we're supposed to pick? Right. So book two starts out where he says, all right, we're going to put the atheists aside. Now we're going to deal with the God-believers. Right. There's two general general categories of God-believers. There are the monotheists and the polytheists. Uh, pantheists. Yeah, yeah. And he, basically, and he draws a distinction between those two groups where basically the pantheists believe that the gods are part of the universe and that when the universe ceases to exist, they cease to exist, we all cease to exist. Whereas the monotheists, whether they be uh, Christians, Jews, or... Uh, he has a funny term. Yeah, he doesn't say... Uh, he says Mohammedists. 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 I was like, yeah, I, I remember seeing that as well. Uh, Muslims. All general... Well, because they're all basically based on the Abrahamic god that god is the creator of the universe and so therefore is not can can exist outside of what what our known universe is right that's the foundation there's no and then the the moral difference is tim has notes don't worry he's just reading through them are you talking about the moral issue of uh, argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. Yes. Then he, yeah, then he pivots to then he pivots to the the cruelty, the cruelty and morality. How do you explain God in a cruel world? Yeah. And the pantheist argument is basically, well, it's a cruel world. 
the gods are part of it. They're indifferent to whether or not it exists. In fact, they participate in good and bad. But then why, and then his question is, but then why do we have such a profound inclination towards the good? If, yes. So if if you're listening to this and you have any kind of background on the uh, Greco-Roman, basically what what we're talking about are Greek gods. I was like, you could take Norse mythology, you can say Hagar mythology, but I mean, we'll isolate, we'll say Greek, because that's probably what you have most familiarity with. Your most familiar is, is they are amoral creatures who are only, man is serving at their whim, and... Yeah, the the world is their playground. The world is their playground, and there is no right or wrong... The only right and wrong is that whatever wrong that is done is something unjust done to them that they see. Right. From their p- perspective. Right. But there's no... The universal... what Whatever universal code there is within, let's say, Ulysses and other great Greek tragedies is... There's no real right or wrong on what you and you and I would call morality. Right and wrong is uh, duty, courage, those kinds of. Those are the things that are held up as the high standard. Right. Those things that we had talked about last week, where it was like, where do these come from? Um, and we're seeing that the pantheists, if you or the polytheists, if you're looking at that, it's like, oh, that doesn't really necessarily work for a lot of people's belief system. If that's what you believe, you're like, nope, that's what makes the most sense for me. Lewis is sitting there saying, well, that just doesn't really like have you asked these questions of yourselves? Like, how does this work? Um and again, this is something that he tackled in this book is where he sits there and says, you should be asking these questions. You should be sitting there and saying like, oh, what does this mean? Where does this come from? Because this is what, this is how you don't have this boyish faith where you just take everything on a whim. It's ask these questions and dive deeper um, because he says it's, you're no good. Why are the Greeks revolted by Oedipus killing, not only killing, but killing his father? Where does that come from? Right? Right. That's what Lewis is saying. It's like, well, where does that come from? Because Oedipus is just taking what he wants. Why does Oedipus gouge out his eyes after he realizes that he's killed his own father and sleeps with his mother? Right. Because who cares? He's he's it's survival of the fittest. He's 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 top dog. He's done what he's want. So where does that where does that right. uh, revulsion Why? come from? Right, exactly. Um, and so will the gods be disgusted with that? Hell no. Zeus straight up sleeps with every single one of his sisters. Right. Right. He would have slept with his mother, like. That's not beyond him. Like, right. And he killed his father. So, like, I, I don't... There's... Yeah, there's interesting kind of aspects with that. Where... Yeah, and so that's where, again... But, for the most part... Um, unless you are... Uh, the most prominent polytheistic culture today... 
and I can't actually speak to it a lot because I really don't know a lot about it, um, would be Hinduism. I, I, I honestly don't know. Like, I don't, I don't. Yeah, the, the one thing I think we, we in the West are really bad at, 9-11 brought a lot of us to a better understanding of uh, Islam, but Islam's a, frankly, it's a Western religion. It's not an Eastern religion. It's it's become global, but again, it's it comes from the same yeah that lineage one, as Judaism and Christianity. That one's uh, yeah, it's a lot easier for those in the West to understand that one, even though yeah. But Buddhism and Hinduism, and even some other smaller religions, I have very little understanding of understanding of right and so if you have any if you have any thoughts if you're possibly hindu and you're listening to this um and you have some thoughts on this process please reach out to us uh and and let us know what you think because again we don't want to sit there and just we're simply saying that this is one of those conversations that uh that he is having and um, we we grappled early on in the in the genesis of this podcast with the, with the question of why is christianity so western how do we how do we deal with that right if, if christianity is to save the world how is it this primarily western religion oh and also like again when i say this because there may be some of you that are haitian or maybe you are uh from some other nation that may have had several uh gods that you practice with or whatever um, I'm not discouraging that. I'm just saying that Hinduism uh, in our area is probably the most prominent multi-god religion. Um, that's I mean, India, um, and there's a huge amount of Hindus in India make up uh, their population alone. It's is massive. So uh, that's just kind of what we're talking about there. So after that, after he sits there and says, okay, so you either believe in polytheism or monotheism, and he sits there and says, okay, so monotheism kind of makes the most sense, so to speak, um, based off of what he's presented, or did you still want to keep on that? Well, Sorry, just before we move on, he makes one, I think, very profound point, and he says, the problem with atheism is, atheism says there's no meaning to the world, to to the universe right. and to living there is none and if there is no meaning then how is it humanity is always struggling to find meaning are we just all morons who are trying to find meaning where we shouldn't or is it suggestive of something that the atheists are missing right and this is something that's been around for a while where there is a where again he separates us from the beasts um and and man where there is this where dogs cows fish in the sea they don't sit there and struggle with meaning but us as humans sit there and ponder what is life's meaning and also if there is no meaning then why do we give a shit about right and wrong Right, and remember, and if you go back to a couple podcasts that we had before, remember, purpose is not the same thing as meaning. Right, yeah. Um, and so really trying to grapple with what is the meaning of my life, what is the meaning of life in the broader sense. Um, and so there is no meaning. But again, like I said... Uh, so if you sit there and say there is no meaning, well, then it's like, okay, well, like, I, I, we can't sit there and argue with you. 
if you sit there and say there is no meaning, then it's like, okay, well, I mean, I can try and present these ideas of why there is a meaning. Why? I mean, at that, why do you get up out of the bed, out of bed in the morning? They'll just say, cause I want to. And it's like, okay, like there's, you know, um, you can continue to give simplistic answers over and over again, and we could go round and round, but again, it's, there's not an address to that question that we're ans- that we're trying to get answered and those people are just actively not trying to answer the question. So it's very similar to as a teacher when I I give a kid a test and they just sit there and just click C all the way down. It's what it feels like when you're trying to have a conversation with people that are just trying to have this where it's like you're not really trying to understand the question, you're not trying to read the question. Ultimately, at the end of the day, you're just trying to be done with the question, so to speak. So it's pretty good. We have a special introduction to uh, our beer for this evening. We're drinking the Flash Mob. We've had it before on the show. Uh, a while back, though. Uh, in bottles, but this time it's in a can. Beer. It's the best damn drink in the world. Mosaic hop, right? Is that our hop? Uh, uh, let's see. Citra. Oh, citra hop on that one. Yep. Um, so, where do we go from there? After the this gauntlet that he throws down with the atheists and the polytheists. Okay, so then he on. goes... So then he continues to tease out different theistic beliefs so then he tackles after dealing with the atheists and calling them simplistic then he deals with i don't remember reading does he go with that after the Taoists next or is that chapter three the group he goes after next i don't think he puts it this this is the group he calls the children and i other than kind of giving them a pejorative term he doesn't specifically name them like atheists he doesn't call them universalists but I take them as universalists because he said this group of people basically says everything's fine there's no need for redemption we all go to heaven or the same place when we're all done there's no need for a savior to save anybody because we're all basically good sure yeah that that whole concept not so great now, you may be sitting there at home and you're like, well, wait, Colton, haven't we talked about this subject before? And you kind of lean into it. Again, my idea is a little stinky. Huh? This is skanky. Yeah. Um, skunky. My thing is with, we're talking about the beer, by the way, <laughs> is when we're talking about the this idea of universalism in Christianity, it, the, the mission and the vision of Jesus Christ is the important part that should be focused on. Um it's not this whole idea that everybody's good um, of anything. It's no, there, there are broken, bad people out there in the world. And so this mission and this vision needs to be shared with them. So that way we can continue to improve this world that God has put us in dominion over. Um, and so that's that kind of idea. Yeah. Nothing gets an eye roll out of Tim more than watching a TV show or movie where someone says, I don't know why this happened to me. I'm a good person. There are no good people. 
there are no bad people either. Sometimes Christian, Christians take that to the extreme and say we're all rotten and terrible because of Jesus Christ. That's not my interpretation of the gospel. But we are not all quote-unquote good people. Can confirm that Tim is definitely rotten and terrible. Yes. Dirty Rotten Scoundrel. That's right. Great movie. Uh, so then he goes on from there to the duelists. Right, that's Taoism for anybody that's... Uh, Playing, a, playing uh, religious bingo as to what we're going to cross off the list. Uh, this is your yin and yang um, idea where there is a there is a good and there is a bad. Um, good believes that they are good. Bad believes that they are not necessarily good is not the term, but b- bad is whatever the feeling is that we feel good is bad is the same like bad feels that way towards bad things it, it's it's complicated but just know that good is not a term that you should associate with it but it it's basically star wars theology of just i mean it's he-man and friggin skeletor like you know just yeah. like the whole evil well, let's break the, let's 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 do break this down. If somebody's listening to this and they're not sure what their Christian worldview, and we this is a list of this is on a list of topics to do at some point. The Christian view, actually, this is good for a Christian to hear because a lot of Christians, depending on the flavor of Christianity, you might have a warped view of Satan. Satan is not God's nemesis. These are not two opposing forces. Satan is not the omnipotent evil spirit. He is not God's equal. No. As far as like evil goes, like it, it's not sitting there saying like uh, there is this there is this omnipotent, omnipresent God, and Satan is his. Yeah, like you said, opposite. Where you have this now omnipotent, omnipresent evil. Correct. This is. Wherever Satan literally is, that is where Satan's dominion is and his demons. He does not have some omnipotent, omnipresent power. Yes. Whereas dualism, Taoism would say that it is two opposing, two opposing powers, and they are doing battle. Uh, it's battle of the titans. Yes, and and. Uh, and and Lewis actually gives a lot of props to dualism. Um, he sits there and says, "Hey, this actually has good merit in it." Um, as far as this kind of idea that if people are using this to kind of answer um what's going on in the world, he says that it's pretty good. He's like, "There's there's a lot of that sense," and he says, "But where it falters is." really in the idea of the evil aspect um where there's this you know for those of you that are familiar with with the yin and yang again you have this chaos and you have this control kind of elements and you have to have this nice blend in between and that's where we live is actually in this realm of chaos and control what's really funny is that you'll find that in psychology that they have that same kind of idea about kind of our consciousness and our subconsciousness is there's this chaos control element going on with the id and the um 
and your ego and your alter ego kind of thing. But, um, <laughs> what's really important is that he says that where you find the problem with it comes in the evil aspect. Um, when you look at evil is that can you, you have to, and it's very complicated to kind of describe to you, but just the idea of in in doing evil, you would have to be rewarded with evil, and that would have to be what brings you, the, the term would be joy, but actually what it would need to bring you would be more evil. So, But actually, like again, this, this gets complicated to where it's like you cannot, you cannot receive good things that we perceive as good on the, like, things that you experience that are good. We have, you can list them, right? Like, you feel a sense of accomplishment, blah, 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 achievement, but, you know, all of these things. These are good things. Things that are outlined that are that are good. Those are great things for you to feel. You cannot feel those in the evil sector. Like, you, in order to, like, in order for you to receive pleasure or, like, not even, you can't even say pleasure because pleasure would be considered a part of the, the white side. You would, like, in order for you to have done what would be conceived good in the dark side of things you would then get tortured more and that that would leave you that would be greater so to speak like it, it's a really weird concept and he's like okay so that just doesn't make sense and the reason why and why you can buy into the christianity sense as opposed to what's going on here is what you were talking about with when you bring up satan is that satan um, and we, or the devil, or whatever you want to call him, understood what good was, and he broke it. So there is this fall that happens. So this was somebody who was there. This is all right. Everything was all. If you want to again, if you picture it as far as the whole like yin and yang. So everything was white, and before it became black, and then. Um, and sorry, that's not to be racist again. I'm just going with the old <laughs> ancient Chinese symbolism. Um, and then it falls and then there's this fall. And so there's this understanding that we, again, very similar to what he talked about in the first book, where he's saying that there is this desire for good, yet we do bad. It's not. We desire for bad and we continue to like try for bad and we have to do both. We have to do this dance in between both. That's right. not what it is. It is continually we want to do we want to achieve good balance but yet of force. We fall short. That's just not how it works. Instead well the dualism is not how it works. Correct. Because if that were true, you would literally have to balance them. You would sit there and say, okay, well, then I did a bunch of good today, so therefore I need to go and do bad. And I know that that's not exactly how that works. I'm not saying that. But he's, he's laying out that argument where he's sitting there and saying, like, listen, you are not needing to even those things out in your life. Because we are continually striving for good. Um, and it's this fall in understanding that there was once this good high bar and then something has fallen from that grace. And we, humanity, has even fallen from that grace. So that's kind of how he responds to dualism. All right. Then from there, he pivots to 
free will <laughs> in the world of good and evil and how to square that eternal question. I don't know if that's an et eternal question. Certainly a question in modern Christianity dating back several centuries. Yeah. I think I think we've been more fixated modern. on that, the rationalism. What was that? I said modern, you know, like dating back several centuries. Like, yeah. yeah. So he has a simple, if you've taken any philosophy or you've grown up in a church, he repeats the simple answer of God create. God creates the world. He creates humanity to have free will because if he doesn't allow free will, then what he is getting back as followers of him, true worshipers and followers of him, is not genuine. We're just basically bi uh, biological robots. And so therefore we have to be given the free will of choosing to follow him and love him or not. Yeah, and I think that that comes down to the whole, like, meaning of life. Um, there's things that we don't even begin to understand, but again, kind of going back to what is what is our meaning in life? And when you're looking through faith, there's something where you're going to have to come to terms with the fact that we are here to, to choose to follow God. Um, there's a lot of our meaning um, as far as our existence goes behind that. What that purpose serves for God, uh, we don't know. Um, and we talked about that uh, a couple episodes ago. Um, it's really important. Uh, when he talks about free will, also he gives the, the very classic, um, he gives the parent analogy um, of just kind of uh, understanding what free will looks like. Um, because again, he, he answers that question about how can an all loving God allow for all of these things to happen? Or how can uh, you leave his, or it's about how can you be outside of his will? I think is what he's talking about. And he's like, well, I willed for my kids to do this, but yet they chose to do this. Correct. Like, um, and so like, what does that look like? Again, I'm not a parent, um, but I can still sympathize and empathize and sit there and say there are plenty of things that my parents definitely did not will for my life. And those are the paths that I chose and those are the things that I took. Um, and yet my parents continue to love me unconditionally to this day. Um, I mean, I haven't tested it that hard, <laughs> you know? Um, well, I can also say as a parent, the relationship, I think, becomes the fullest at the point where the children, it's not even that they're doing all the things you want them to do. It's just that they're loving, they are loving you unconditionally, not just because you're the thing that feeds them and uh, clothes them and all that kind of thing. Right. I think that that is the closest that you, and I don't, I hopefully this isn't like, I don't think that this is sacrilegious to say, but I think that that is the closest that you can get to. I don't think that cleanliness is the closest thing to righteousness. I think that, <laughs> I think that parenting. I agree. I think that's why you, God wants us to have children. helps you understand the love that he has for you. Um, where you are a creation of his and he very much loves you and wants you and not necessarily to 
like for any of you that are parents, you don't want your children to worship you, so to speak. But you still want them to acknowledge you and and have respect for you and reverence for you. Um, there's a lot of really good things that you wish for for your children to where hopefully you sit there and say, you know, 10 years down the line, I want you to sit there and like, I hope that someday you come to realize you're like, oh, that's why they did that. Yeah. And that becomes a really cool moment for you and for your kids. Um, and I think that's really important. But, uh, and that's why I think it was a great analogy, but again, I don't have kids, so I can't really speak to that. So, but I still think it's cool. Okay. So from then he pivots to explaining where the fall comes from, where the schism comes from and simply lays that out as we have on the podcast and the church has for 2,000 years, the schism is that the Adam and Eve story is that we, is Adam and Eve, and humanity ultimately decided it wanted to be God. And that separation has then led to the fall. Yes. And we crave... Again, where we sit there and we say that there's these issues that we have as humans and this this kind of hole that they speak of. And again, if you're an atheist listening to this, you're like, I don't feel a hole. Right. We're not saying that every single person feels this hole. But why is it that Aristotle and Socrates tried to answer these questions? Why are these questions being asked in philosophy questions? Why is it that sometimes at a bar you sit there and you're a couple beers deep and you sit there and say, hey, have you ever wondered what's the point? Why do you ask those questions? Why? Why Why is it that people hit midlife crisis? Yeah, well, he goes further than just saying asking about the questions. He He says, we are created... We are created to follow him. And when we don't, we're unhappy. And again, you, as Colton said, a lot of you might not feel that unhappiness. Certainly humanity's had a lot of people who seem perfectly happy and are atheists. But it still stands to reason, and I think there's probably an analogy in there that he included where... Well, I think he does. He talks about an engine. If someone creates an engine, if, if the engine's not being used as the inventor intended to it, it still might be serving a purpose, but it's not serving the ultimate purpose that it was created for. Well, and again, we're not sitting there and saying that, like, and I think this is important to say, and I think Tim would 100% agree with me, is that we're not sitting here and saying that Jesus is all of a sudden, or like Christianity is now going to make you happy and fill that void for you, just magically. Again, it answers some questions. That's what we're looking to do um, through this process and, and really understanding what, what questions does Christianity answer? is really what it is. There's a lot of questions that are out there in the world and so which ones does it answer and which ones which one does it answer and which one does it not answer? That's really important. And so when we say 
what we're saying right now about Christianity and um, it's this, and like he said, this analogy of it's this engine that's not being used for its intended, or just life itself is not being used for its intended purposes. Uh, is it reaching the max of its potential? And we'd say no, right? But again, are you answering the questions? No, you're not. You're just ignoring them. I'm just sitting there and saying, well, this works just fine. And we're like, okay, but you can unlock so much more by being able to use this to the fullest of its potential. Yeah. So then from there, he does another big pivot. This, this, the first chapter was very methodical and, I mean, first book. The first book last week was very methodical and just kind of moved along very incrementally trying to lay the groundwork. This one is kind of breakneck where it goes a couple chapters and then he pivots and then... So he then pivots from that point to diving into the Bible. Right. So he so he sits there and he goes through those those couple of things that we talked about where he's going after atheists, dualists, um, polytheists, where he's like, okay. And the reason why it's breakneck speed is, again, all of these chapters are three pages long. So he's like, okay, polytheists. Because they're getting, being published in the newspaper. Right. He's like, oh, polytheists, you get three pages. All right. All right. We proved you were wrong. Um, as far as what he's trying to prove at the point, um, he's like, okay, um, all right, atheists, you get three pages. All right, I proved you wrong. On to the next one. Uh, Duelist, you get three pages. All right, I just proved you wrong too. Okay, next. All right, now that I've said that all three of you are wrong, I now need to explain why this one that I have is the correct one. I think he ends that chapter where he's wrapping up that portion of the book by saying... If none of that resonates with you, he doesn't say it in this way, but it's basically, it's in his own way, in much less words, says, if none of that resonates with you, I got nothing for you. Yeah, exactly. Don't even bother reading what I'm going to continue to write. Yeah, no, he does. Like, like he's... I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm inviting you not to waste your time. Yeah, exactly. But actually, he keeps that tone the entirety of the book. Correct. It is, and he's not being a jerk. He's just nope. being like he's just like listen. Like you should be done listening to this by yeah. now. And he felt that way at the end of the first book. He's like, if you're not buying into this, okay, see ya. Like, and really, mere Christianity. If you are a rational person, I think it is a great starting point. If you are not of the faith, it is a great starting point. Yes. To really understanding some of those things. I think you need to go look at several other texts while you're at it to just to just really dive in a little bit deeper than just three pages on some of these topics. Yeah, if you're reading this, then it's not great. Uh, but I, I do think that it lays a great foundation for them. If you are a believer, this is perfect. He's going to outline a lot of that stuff for you. Again, if, if you aren't a believer... This is a really cool kind of foundation laying stuff. But again, I think you're going to need to supplement with other texts for sure. So after he's done going through that stuff, and so you may feel like that's a little rapid. And if you're and if you're a believer of atheism, polytheism or dualism, you'll probably be like, well, he just he just threw that out in like a page and a half. And you're probably like, I have all of these things that I could possibly say about that and those types of stuff. Um if you are one of those people, listen, uh, Tim, Tim and I, I, like I said earlier about the whole like polytheism, you have I, you have my permission to email us 
Um, we give our emails out at the end of every podcast. And if you're sitting there and you're like, hey, I'd like for you to consider this or whatever, we'd love um, to hear that. I don't know if we talk about it. We may talk about it at some point on the podcast or whatever. Um, but that's an opportunity for you to sit there and say, hey, have you ever considered this or that? Um, and, and Tim and I have discussions. We're not people that uh, just throw things away um, when we talk about them. And so uh, that's true. But if you're sitting there and you're like, he's only spending three pages. You're right. That's not necessarily a fair shake. But um, again, this was this was originally made for radio and for the newspaper. Mm-hmm. Um, these were these were quick segments um, for him to get through and they're phenomenal um, and they're really basic but they get through a lot in just those three pages each chapter but after that after he gets through all three of those he sits there and says all right let's focus in on this one because i've sat there and i've been very pessimistic i've said okay this doesn't work this doesn't work this doesn't work so he's like so you're sitting there and you're like okay then what the hell works and he's like okay and so the uh, Title of chapter four is The Perfect Penitent, and that's what we're looking at. And who is The Perfect Penitent? So he starts the chapter by saying, then we get to the, God then basically reveals who he is through the Jews, which then manifests itself in Jesus. Which we talked about on the show where we say that you cannot... It has been historically proven that somebody named Jesus existed. Right. You can argue about miracles, blah, 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 but you that there is enough historical evidence to prove that somebody in the Middle East during that specific time period did exist. And I would also say in the short amount of time he spends on it, he has seems to have a more similar view of the Old Testament than the traditional evangelical where the old testament is better understood as god doing his best to reveal himself through the jews and the jews constantly (laughs) not getting who he is and misinterpreting who he is right there's this and we take that as literal oh this is who god is because god told the israelites to go out and wipe everybody off the face of the earth and this is the israelites saying Oh, he told us we were going to get Canaan. So that means we got to, God clearly would have told us to go wipe everybody off the face of the earth and take, take them all as slaves. So. Well, and again, and when it comes to the historical Jesus, again, you're looking at what is it that is there about the historical Jesus is that there is definitely somebody who is going around who was creating a movement for a couple of years within uh, the Jewish community in Israel um, during that time. And so there's something going on down there during this specific time period. And so you, you, so if you look at history, this guy existed. And so he sits there and he says, okay, so if we acknowledge that, which we have to, and he didn't even have as much evidence at that point as we have now, He's like, okay, so we acknowledge that. So then you are either believing a crazy man. Yeah, and he deals he deals with the uh the great man fallacy. Right. Or the the great prophet philosophy or the great pop, uh, 
prophet fallacy or the great guru fallacy. But basically this idea, the, the Thomas Jefferson view of this guy had a lot of great things to say, but I'm going to cut out all of the, I'm going to use a razor blade to cut out all the things where he performs a miracle because that world doesn't exist. Right. Uh, or a more modern interpretation, which is similar, which is, no, he, you know, he said all these great things. It fits within the time. He was it just fits a good within man. the 60s milieu of love everyone. And, you know, Jesus was one of the original originators of it and all that kind of stuff. But as, say, as Lewis articulates in this, and for a more, more modern version, look up uh, Bono from U2 in multiple interviews also repeating it, which is you either believe he is who he says he is, or he was a crazy, lunatic person that no one should be following. Right. And that becomes, again, when uh, this episode uh, is going to be appearing after our Easter, Easter episode, where again we look at how these miracles actually shifted what happened to where we sit there and say this is the man who he is this is a man who again and this is something that we said on the show before is that you have to acknowledge whether you like it or not if you are a christian you have to acknowledge that there is a supernatural element about jesus christ because we can sit here and we say, no matter how much, and again, you go back to some of our furthest episodes where uh, I've said something along the lines of like, you know, there's there's borderline myths um, in the Bible. They're not, um, and again, it's just an explanation of how uh, we got to where we are, but they're not necessarily the stories of how the world was created or whatever, right? And so we can sit there and we can make those exaggerations, but when it comes to Jesus Christ, there is no, you cannot budge. You either believe, I. this is one of those things where it's like, uh, you either believe, and I, and we hate to be so black and white, but it, it's, it's kind of a true thing. When it comes to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have to either be all of it or none of it. This is a crazy man that no one should listen to. Or he is who he says he is. Based off of that situation. Is he just a is he just a guy that had a really good message that people should follow? Or is he a lunatic? Okay. So from there, he then says, Okay, now we have the cross. Yeah. And he lays out there's multiple theories within Christianity on what what actually is literally happening at the cross. And I think he he mentions one or maybe two or three. I think he might might say there's a lot of them, but he only mentions one. He, he illustrates one, which is uh, Jesus volunteered to take the punishment of the world. And he makes it clear, I don't want to get into the specifics. There's a lot of different theories as to what is literally happening on the cross. But he does take his take a moment to say that repentance is an important part of the process. 
He goes out of his way to say, this is not just me saying, yeah, I really like this Jesus guy, and I believe he is who he says he is. It's more, there's more to it. There requires, as one might say, skin in the game. Yeah. And that skin in the game is to die to oneself in ceasing to be what one was before. And it doesn't mean we get transformed into perfect people, but it means we are surrendering our old self and becoming a new self as a follower of Jesus Christ. Then he goes in to try to explain, well, why does God even need to do this whole thing? Why is there a God and why is there this Jesus and why is why does something that is that is part part of God that's God's son actually becoming human in order to do this? Why couldn't he have just waved his hand and said, "I really love everybody and I'm just going to wipe away all all I'm going to wipe the slate clean." You remember what he says about that? He says God literally can't do it. It's it's against his nature to do that. Well, he promised it and Genesis so well he says in order I think he I think what I think what Lewis says is he literally has to take the human form in order to experience the sacrifice in order to do it it would go against his nature to just wave it away yeah I I think that this is again when we're talking about the big questions this is also something that comes up uh when it comes to questions about the faith. Because this is also something that's uh, very prehistoric, is this idea of sacrifice. Uh, still to this day, we struggle with sacrifice, and especially if you are a part of a westernized culture, sacrifice is something that's very difficult um, for us to grasp with. Um, and wrestle with um, the biggest sacrifice that any person, if you are, uh, if you are an atheist, so to speak, that you ever have to make is the sacrifice that you have to make towards uh, your government. So those are your taxes that you have to pay. Um, those are sacrifices that you are willing to make in order to ensure that um, you know your safety exists in your city. Um, your children get a free education again free with quotes around it um, because again you pay taxes even though a very small percentage of what you pay in taxes actually goes towards education um, goes towards your roads which again a very small portion of there's like a if, whatever you think you're paying yes a very small portion of every single penny that you pay gets paid towards those types of things again those that's the highest sacrifice that you're having to pay and so yeah there's this idea of okay so the, if that's your perception then why is it that god had to send his son to the world and like john three sixteen says that god gave his only son so that uh you know we could be saved and so how does that make sense in all of it? Well, how does that work? Why did God have to die in order for us, everyone from that point on, to be saved by his grace? What, what magical cosmos type thing had to happen for that to happen? You got an answer to 
No, I, I, I really don't. Lewis's answer is God had to do it in order. God had to feel that in order to have the debt paid, is I think what he said. I think in my answer, and this may not be a good enough answer for anybody that's out there and you may have counter arguments or whatever, is that it is it is an answer to his own law. It's a law that he created. And again, if you know uh, how I perceive scripture and where I believe that God has believed that humanity or the way that he has to deal with humanity since the flood is very progressive um, to where he works millimeters at a time to progressing humanity as it is. But in the Old Testament, he creates his law and then has to, and then eventually he has to answer for it in order enough to free um, the world. But then, I mean, and again, because he isn't all loving, and again, there is this sense that you need to understand that God is also extremely, that he is just. And so therefore... Like you, like Lewis says, a debt had to be paid, and so he paid it um, for the all, for all of mankind, based off of the laws that he had set. But again, also something that's similar to be said is that it's, and actually this is a really good uh, way to, to describe it. As we currently have a president who's being indicted. Now, whatever your side is on this whole situation, knowing that this is somebody who was made up a part of the legislature who could, or not the legislature, but the executive branch who could, you know, veto and create policies. Um, he could create laws and send them into the legislative uh, branch and they can do all those types of things. He was very much a part of the law that existed in this country is still not above the law that was created and what he has to do for it so that's just what my perspective is on it um i don't know if it's a good enough answer but yeah i'll read what he says part part of what he says but supposing god became a man suppose our human nature which can suffer and die was amalgamated with God's nature in one person, then that person could help us. He could surrender his will and suffer and die because he was man and he could do it perfectly because he was God. You and I can go through this process only if God does it in us, but God can only do it only if he becomes man. Our attempt at, at this dying will succeed only if we men share in God's dying, just as our thinking can succeed only because it is a drop out of the ocean in his of his intelligence. But we cannot share God's dying unless he dies. And he cannot die except by being a man. That is the sense in which he pays for our debt and suffers for us, while he himself need not suffer at all. So that's similar to what you're saying. God's 
law of the universe, fundamental law of the universe, is someone has to die. Someone has to pay a price for not loving me, disobeying me. Yes, a sacrifice has to be made. And in order for me to wipe the debt clean from those who have done that, without them paying that sacrifice, I, I have to sacrifice myself in some way. And I think for a lot of us in westernized culture, that's extremely barbaric. You could sit there and look at the law, and if any of you sat there and said, that's barbaric, I don't blame you for sitting there and thinking that. I don't think Tim blames you for sitting there and thinking that. No, I I agree. I think that's the curse of modernity. There, there's a, a we've talked about it on a couple recent podcasts about how we've so been separated from the natural world in a lot of cases in our modern life that we don't understand being closer to nature and seeing animals die on a regular basis and having to you know kill your own food and all that and see children die in childbirth and all there's just the brutality of nature we're we're largely not exposed to that and uh you can then raise the question why the world needs to be that way but the world is that way and because of that we we don't we don't uh associate with things like sacrifice and that kind of thing as much as we used to. Yeah. We talk about sacrifice, but the things we talk about in our society about sacrifice aren't really sacrifice. Yeah. It's, you know, it's showing up on a Saturday and handing out hot chocolate to people who don't have houses and make us feel, make, make ourselves feel better. Yeah. That's a sacrifice, man. Okay. So, so basically again, we're, we're in the middle. What, Lewis is doing right now is at breakneck speed explaining the gospel. That's really what he's doing. Right. In a few pages, he's yes. laying out, we have the Old Testament. It's God trying to reveal himself through these chosen people. He then fully re- reveals himself through Jesus. Jesus sacrifices himself for us. Uh, in order to be a Jesus follower, one doesn't just call him just say yeah yeah that jesus is lord and savior and then you just go on there's got to be some sort of transformation there's this dying to oneself to where we see a difference in who we are before calling ourselves to be a jesus follower and then he goes from there uh, then tries to explain why does jesus why does this whole jesus thing have to happen why is there the sacrifice this is so strange and from there, he goes to the sacraments and really quickly tries to explain these sacraments and why they're key to Christian living. And he br- briefly talks about baptism, belief, and the communion. And he calls communion by all their various names and the forms of the church. And then, after going through that, then he circles back and says... and tackles the idea of well why are you believing this what what evidence do you have that this jesus guy existed and why are you living your whole life around that and one of his key paragraphs in that is saying look i eat food and i am told by scientists 
that is made up this molecular structure and it's got vitamins in it and all that. And I have no idea how any of that works. But because of the authority of the scientists, I know that what I'm eating has that in it. By the same token, I know that the Norman Conquest happened in 1106, 1006, whenever it was. I know it happened. How do I know that happened? I have no proof of it. I have it on good authority from historians, which has been passed down. And he has several other arguments, which I think is a phenomenal argument, and I think the church should use it more often. We have these... We live in an age where we... It's gotten worse, but not demonstrably worse than even in the 1950s of, you know... Even by the 1950s, we'd reached peak scientific, science, scientificism, rationalism, all that kind of thing, where one wanted proof of what one, one believed in. And he is simply pointing out, that's nonsense. We go around in our daily lives believing in all kinds of things that we don't know how they happened, or even have verification that they did happen, but take it on firm foundation that they absolutely did happen. Right. And it's no different for me. Hell, half of Germany walks around not believing that the Holocaust even existed. <laughs> so, yeah, I know. I think uh, I think it's true. There's <laughs> there's a lot of things that we take on faith in our daily life. There there's a lot of things that we take on faith of based off of science and those types of things. And that's totally fine. There there have been a lot. Of, there's been a lot of research. Lots of lots of theories and facts that go into hypotheses um, that help create. Um, those things that we take. But at the same time, there's also lots of theories and facts and that people have been able to dig up about um, the Christian faith that we can also just sit there and take on faith based well, off look, of the facts that are presented. So. The vast majority of our of our history... Let's just take history. Let's take science out of it. Let's take history. Sure, take The vast majority of our history is, best, is based on second and third hand accounts. And it's yeah. multiple second and third hand accounts. But it's second and third hand accounts of things occurring we don't have first-hand documentation of someone saying something or the actual document of it we just have lots of people saying this thing happened and we take it as an article of faith or fact in this case that it happened we take the battle of thermopylae as like yes. more of a fact than we take jesus christ as a fact <laughs> all right he ends with two last major points one is a key distinction that he makes which is this transformative behavior seen in a christian is not just our doing and it's not just us magically following what jesus said and like having an epiphany like oh, okay now i get it i'm gonna do it it is actually because jesus is living within us and guiding us to live out that behavior that he's called us to. Yes. Which we would call the Holy Spirit. But he, he doesn't quite call it that. But he, it's not that he d disagrees. And then his final bit is the second coming. <laughs> he has a brief description of what this, of this second coming that's going to happen. Oh, the second coming. Um, the second coming is difficult because... Yeah, and he talks about it in the in the scriptures where he's you know there's this idea of the way we live our lives is as if 
the master's never coming back, right? Then there's the parable of the master who's away. Um, and then he's going to catch us red-handed. It's very similar to, you know, uh, the manager not at the store or whatever, and all of a sudden they show up and they catch everybody slacking off and not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Um, and so there's this message where it's like, I can come back at any moment. And I can come in and I can check on you. And what's funny is that we believe that like God is checking in on us all the time. <laughs> it's like God knows what's going on. It's not, it's, we're, and when we get caught red handed, it'll be the same thing as, you know, we'll look just as dumb as Adam and Eve. What? What, what do you mean, Lord? Well, I, we were just hiding right here for no reason. Yeah, we're fully clothed uh, now because, like, we it seemed fashionable. Actually, <laughs> I'm rereading what he says, and it's kind of a slap to the dispensationalists. Sure. What he's writing. Uh, let's skip down. Christians think he's going to land in force. We do not know when. But we can guess why. He is delaying. He wants to give us a chance of joining his side freely. I do not suppose you and I would have thought much of a Frenchman who waited till the Allies were marching into Germany and then announced he was on our side. God will invade. But I wonder whether people who ask God to interfere openly and directly in our world quite realize what it will be like when he does. When that happens, it is the end of the world. When the author walks onto the stage, the play is over. God is going to invade, all right, but what is the good of saying you are on his side then when you see the world natural, when, when you see the whole natural universe melting away like the dream and something else, something it never entered into your head or conceived of, comes crashing in something so beautiful to some of us, and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time, it will be God without disguise, something so overwhelming it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late, then, to choose your side. There is no use saying you choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when you, we discover... Which side we really have chosen, whether we realized it before or not. Now, today, this moment, is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. Yeah. So again, he's. I think he's lightly rebuking the tribulationists. and But also saying, yeah, for those of you who are kind of dilly-dallying around, don't dilly-dally around. Yeah. Stop waiting for some sign. There's been plenty of signs. If you're waiting for him to actually return by then, it's too late. Exactly. I completely agree. I think that Lewis is very upfront about what it is that he's talking about when it comes to any of these topics. He's. I. I love the 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 name of this book and just being mere Christianity. Let me get to this basics, so to speak. Um, and so he's just outlining some of this stuff, and though it's kind of a hard pill to swallow it sometimes, 
Um, it's really, let me lay down this foundation to let you know. Let's strip away some of those things that maybe that you held on to for so long. And let's get down to the root and then you build from there. Um, let's get out all these weeds that are growing up so that way we can get your bud up and growing. So. Okay, so now we're going to go to book three, the next episode. That is, I think, when he starts talking about how to practice quote-unquote morality. Well, quote-unquote practice morality. Uh, which he lays out as a way for us to meant to enjoy life and meant to minimize uh, the amount of misery we bring upon ourselves. So Right. Well, we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Goat Hell Podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and review. Post your comments, questions, criticisms, or an invitation to Hades at goathellpodcast.substack.com. You can always hit us up on Twitter at the Go to Hell Pod and Instagram at Go to Hell Pod. Email me at Tim at go to hellpodcast.com or Colton at go to hellpodcast.com. And if you don't like mere Christianity or C.S. Lewis, go to hell. Perfect. <laughs>